Yes. Um, thank you. Um, I think that was a, a very interesting uh, lecture, uh, Professor Adebanwi. And I think all of us have been uh, I mean, listening and picking up some of the ideas that we presented here. And of course, uh, where we are now is, is, is coming into to the panel without any um, waste of time or further ado. So some of the ideas that uh, I've picked up is understanding or looking into Africa in a global sense and how we then you know, reconcile with the view that there are complexities and other issues of diversity that uh, were brought up from this lecture. So I wouldn't want to, to take on the time. My name is Sizun Kwanazi. I'll be moderating the panel this evening. So I would like to take this chance then to, to give our panelists a chance to introduce themselves. Um, I will start uh, with Shaira then running, um, and we'll come to uh, Unombenduru. So if we could just uh, take a few minutes uh, of introduction and, and, and get to meet um, our, our audience uh, and tell us more about your, um, yourselves, really, or the backgrounds you come from. Thank you. Uh, greetings, everyone. Um, I think uh, Sintura gave us quite a good introduction. Um, but sitting here in Oxford at a talk on decolonization does have uh, a particular sense of irony. <laughs> uh, but like some people say, Moses was raised in the home of the pharaoh. And indeed, um, the crisis of capitalism, patriarchy, and colonialism can be felt the world over. So wherever we speak about this, um, the challenge is very real. And today is also the 15th of May, which is Nakba Day, which marks the 71st <coughs> anniversary of the catastrophe um, and the occupation of Palestine by the apartheid state of Israel. So I'd like to send my solidarity uh, to the Palestinian people, uh, and I'd also like to send my solidarity to the people of Sudan, who are trying to protect their revolution, to the people of Western Sahara as they continue their struggle against Morocco's occupation, and everywhere else in the world where people are resisting an unjust status quo. Decolonizing education is not simply a university project, because a university should be anchored by the society and the world in which it finds itself. These must fall, um, reminded us as students and society in South Africa at large and globally as well, I sometimes get chills when I hear people at Oxford talking about these must fall because when we sat down in front of the university gates on the 14th of October in 2015, we had no idea the impact that it would have globally. And so what it taught us as young people is that the youth have the power, if they are united, to shake the core of an unjust system. And Sizue's first question to us uh, when he sent us prepared questions was, what are we doing at the moment to deal with the project of decolonization? And because I said that decolonization is not just a university project, uh, myself and a few other young people have founded a platform in South Africa called the Mbegu Platform. Mbegu means seed in Swahili. And this is a platform to try and help bridge the geospatial and other divides that exist in South Africa by taking South African graduates into communities on the margins. Firstly, because we have so much of organic knowledge to learn from these communities. And secondly, because what good are our skills and our education if we're not using them to create value where it's needed most? And so this takes place in peri-urban areas. But at the moment, I'm on a bit of a sabbatical from that because I'm here doing my master's at Oxford. 
So I'll continue on <coughs> my thoughts following the questions that you give to us, but that's a short introduction. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Over to you, Ryan. Okay. Um, thank you very much for the invitation to be here. I appreciate it um, to be with uh, the, uh, all of you uh, are very esteemed in my, uh, in my life and uh, appreciate it very much. Um, I'm coming at this from, you'll see, from a, a fairly different angle, uh, being from the United States and my work. My positionality first is as an African-American working in, uh, envir in the environmental arena, both in formal and informal settings, both in schools and, and in other learning, sort of informal learning situations. And specifically, I'm working in environmental education uh, with uh, and in communities of color, uh, low-income communities uh, in, uh, throughout the United States. More recently, uh, in the last decade or so, um, specifically in the West Coast, California, um, uh, up through the Pacific Northwest and into Alaska. Um, <clears throat> just a, a couple of quick stories with that. Um, in 1969, I went to Outward Bound, which has a, a great um, tradition here in Great Britain also. Um, and uh, I remember being in North Carolina, Outward Bound at that time at about 15 or 16 years old. And, uh, and I remember writing in my journal, which I have by my bed in, in San Francisco, uh, where I also have residence. Um, I, I like to look at that journal, that entry journal from that 15 or 16 year old boy who said, I would love to be an outward bound instructor. I wonder if I can because I'm black. So the representation issue came in. I could not understand it at that time. Um, but later, in the Marin Headlands, as an environmental and outdoor educator, leading a group of uh, children from East Oakland, African-American primarily, Latino and uh, recent uh, immigrants from uh, Southeast Asia, kids that were um, 9, 10, 11 years old, uh, and we were on a big uh, parade field at uh, an old military base that's now a national park, a national um, recreation area for the Park Service. And um, uh, this one student came over to me in the middle of games that we were playing and, and educational sort of things that we were doing um, <clears throat> and said to me, why are the police watching us? And so I, I looked at him sort of strangely. I couldn't understand what he was talking about because we were out in nature uh, and we were doing environmental education. Uh, and I said, well, they're not watching us. He said, oh, yes, they are. And he pointed across the parade field among some trees, and there was a Park Service policeman who, in fact, was directed towards us and was in the car. And that, to me, was like, took me back to the Outward Bound experience in some ways because we were confronting, we were confronting racism. We were confronting racism in a national park. We were confronting racism in outdoor education. Um, and this was a really important moment for me, and I've taken that on as, as part of my life work. The final quick story um, is, with uh, an African-American woman who told me this story in a, in a, during a talk that I was giving in, East, in Richmond, California, in an area called the Iron Triangle, because it's um, basically a residential area that's enclosed by um, industrial facilities and uh, uh, fenced in by a railroad track. And she said, I was sitting in my front yard, um, like I do in the sun all, every afternoon, and um, a, a woman came in who was dressed in strange clothing and she had a baby uh, on, her, on her chest and she was scrounging around in my backyard and I was wondering what is she doing in my yard, in my front yard. So she ran out and she chased this woman away and the woman obviously did not know English and she backed off and she was very sorry about this. Um, so, but this got this African-American woman thinking about her own past a little bit and she 
decided, you know, the next time this woman comes here, I am going to ask her what is she doing in my yard. Um, so the woman came back one day, and the African-American woman ran out. The woman thought she'd been caught again, tried to rush out. And she said, no, 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 no. The African-American woman says, no, no, stay, stay. I want you to, to, to tell me what is it that you're doing. And the woman was foraging for uh, things, plants to eat. She was recognizing the plant life in the, in the front yard. This got the African-American woman, as she told me, really thinking about her own past, about how she in Mississippi was actually taught by her great-grandmother uh, how to recognize medicinal plants, what plants were good to eat. Um, and this was a really important story for me because it told me that we actually, all of us, uh, have a connection to the natural world. But that connection to the natural world has been broken by racism, classism, and all the other isms that are out there. And so really my work is centered finally around uh, re-establishing that connection with the natural world that we all, we all have. It is a part of our, uh, is a part of our human heritage, uh, as Wally was talking about it in a somewhat different context. Thank you. Right, thank you. Um, Nopendulo, are you here? Can you see here? She should be able to. Okay, yeah. Um, could you... Give us a brief introduction of yourself, and uh, welcome to this uh, panel discussion, Ray. Hi, everyone. Um, Cynthia truly is a go-getter. Um, I was meant to give a facility, but I guess um, it's an explain that I couldn't come. Um, but Cynthia insisted that we try and have a conversation virtually. Um, the, the conversation around the fourth industrial revolution is very big in South Africa. So when I shared that I'll be uh, joining the conversation virtually, everyone got excited and said, yeah, indeed, um, the fourth industrial revolution is coming to life. Um, my name is Nopen Um uh, I, I, I hope I have been introduced. I think as we go into this conversation, the main, um, the main title that I'd like to refer to uh, myself as is a board, uh, board a director on um, the board of the Matthew Gonyo School of Leadership and Governance. And as I sit on this board, um, I'm very honored as someone who's an aspiring specialist in education. Because I think for me, um, as an, a former student activist at this university, it's, we've highlighted that it's very important that we find a way to close the gap between the basic education system in South Africa and the higher education system in South Africa. And as we speak about decolonizing higher education, I think it's very important that we have the very same conversation in basic education. And when, when South Africa finds itself having conversations around um, making um, history a compulsory subject in basic education, you then begin to see that there is um, an attempt to link the two spaces, right? So, so the basic education system is not left behind as we're talking about decolonization in higher education, because if if the learners that we are putting through the basic education system, um, the matriculants, if they're not ready to enter a system um, that, as, 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 as student activists, as activists of higher education spaces speak of, then we are essentially setting them up for failure um, and we're creating a, a great shock to their system. And so, and so that's the, the type of work that I seek to do. Um, but my view on decolonizing the education system um, speaks to understanding the fact that we, we, we do live in Africa, or we do live in Africa, and we need to have an education system that represents the masses of our, or the majority of our people. 
Um, we need to have a space of learning that represents the majority of our people. Um, and, and, and that for me sort of translates to how you then become um, impactful in, 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 in the economic activities of our state um, in, in your general participation with citizens within the state. Um, and so I, I don't necessarily look at decolonizing the education system as an idea of totally eradicating Western ideologies and, 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 um, and academia, but saying by, by acknowledging the fact that we are on the African continent and how do the different case studies, how do the different scenarios, how do the different um, teachings and, 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 and pedagogy then speak to us as, as Africans? And that's sort of the the manner in which I'd like to look at it in. Um, for example, if you take the idea of the fourth industrial revolution, the conversation of the fourth industrial revolution, um, there are many works in South Africa that are saying the prioritization of that conversation um, in our country is jumping the gun. It's, it's, it's premature. Um, However, when you look at um, the MEC of Education, Banyaza Lusufi, and how he unpacks the fact that we do find ourselves existing in a, in a, in a global system, um, and we need to find a way to relate to um, the teaching of or, or, the, or the academic preparation of the fourth industrial revolution in a way that translates to us as South Africans living in South Africa. Um, and, and, and so for me, when we when we speak of decolonizing the education system, a big part of it speaks to making the education system relatable and effective for a young person living in South Africa. Um, that, that is how I relate to that conversation. Um, so I don't know if I'm, I'm out of time. Uh, uh, it's very hard to, <laughs> to tell when you're not I think you'll join us back in um, as the conversation continues, Nombendulo. Uh, thank you for, for your brief introduction. I think for now, we would look then at the question of uh, today's lecture, really, and, and to then hear your own uh, uh, thesis on the issue of decolonizing education. And for you running, I think, where you could take us to as an, you know, as having had experience as an academic in this, is then to look at um, what are other places to look for, you know, case studies about uh, decolonization. So thinking of how much uh, academia has codified um, certain approaches, you know, for decolonizing education. Mm -hmm. And can we look at different sectors um, outside of academia for best practices? Mm -hmm. But I guess where we are, you know, as a starting place for all of our panelists is to, you know, look <coughs> at uh, a wireless question. Of, of saying is Africa a dissimilar system mm -hmm. and and for you I ask that when you respond to this to then you know help us think of other approaches or other places to look for mm -hmm. um, um, in terms of your own experiences as well. Shaira should we start with you yeah. on this I question of yeah, whether that's, that's you know. right. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, Ngugi uh, Professor Ngugi Wathiongo says that the sea is constituted of many rivers some of which cross many fields, but the rivers and their constituent streams do not lose their individ individuality as streams and rivers. The result is the vastness of the sea and the ocean. So I wanted to start on that, to build on this beautiful analogy. Um, the current formalized Western knowledge production system through the power structure of universities as one source of power uh, stops the flow of certain knowledge, and this is quite literally drying up the ocean. And that's why I really liked your 
um, mm. focus on the, the way in which these isms have really broken the connection between us as human beings and nature in general. And I say westernized and not western because as Professor Ramon Grosfugel says, thanks to hundreds of years of colonial expansion and epistemicide, and epistemicide refers to the killing of knowledge systems, the westernized university is a global structure of a global system in which we live and can be find, found anywhere in the world, not just in the global north. Epistemicide is also the reason that, as Professor Adabanwi uh, correctly mentioned, that the Haitian revolution is not taught, and the paradox of the exploitation of millions of colonial slaves was accepted by the very thinkers who proclaimed freedom to be a human nature and an inalienable right. The paradigms of political economy, uh, even within the global south, sometimes lose sight of important structures of power for the global system. And we know that one of them is the westernized university. This produces universalized elites from the global south who become professionals, but the pretension of universalism itself is troubling. How do we go about embracing a plurality of thinking academically that is accepted and not undermined because of where it comes from? For example, I studied economics as an undergrad. And the way something like utility was described in my textbook is through rational thinking on what makes a person better off. Rational thinking was assumed through a Western lens in that acting rationally means acting in your own self-interest. But this is not always the case. The idea of Ubuntu, for example, teaches us that to act rationally does not mean acting in your own self-interest, but in the, self, in, in, the, in the interest of the collective and the community that you find yourself in. And in that same textbook, government intervention was always seen as something negative. In Islamic history, leaders of a particular community were put on trial because a member of that community had starved to death. Interest was not allowed because making money off of money and speculation heedlessly can lead to what we saw in the 2008 financial crisis. So history has many lessons for us about times when things were very different. And for me, the main thing to think about when we talk about decolonization is that for African studies particularly, it's putting the African in African studies because global studies through a Western lens, given its legitimacy through epistemicide. And because of this reality, the scholarly inquiry that we find in these Westernized universities doesn't speak to a more human and global knowledge production system. And so it, it makes it incumbent on us, as scholars of African studies, to ensure that we don't mm -hmm. fall into the same essentializing um, of Africa but we show how African knowledge and African knowledge production systems have actually always contributed. And because of their lack of contribution, the world is in a dark place. That for now is my thesis, I guess. Yeah, Ronnie. Okay, um, I'd like to just talk for a moment about the environmental justice movement, the emergence of the environmental justice movement in the 1980s early, very 1990, 1990s, 1991 or so. Um, and basically, this was a, a social movement that came from a place where, uh, from, a, from places and from people who were not supposed to know anything about the environment. Uh, they were seen, uh, and, and uh, the reception among government agencies that deal with environmental issues 
was very cold uh, and very, um, uh, very um, uh, 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 reluctant to accept the fact that people who did not have PhDs uh, and people who had, did not have profession, professional credentials of being involved with the environment knew anything about the environment whatsoever. Um, but as it turned out over the years, uh, after some uh, deep con institutional conflict, political conflicts, um, uh, that uh, we accept, we were accepted as having knowledge about our communities. In fact, the, the motto of the environmental justice movement remains, we speak for ourselves. Uh, we know our lives uh, better than anyone else knows our lives because we, we live our lives. Uh, and so uh, Paulo Ferrari's um, uh, educational approach, I think, can be seen in that uh, very popular movement of environmental justice. Um, and so for me as an environmental educator during that period, I began to understand that uh, the role of education in uh, an environmental education in creating a really uh, truncated environmental movement, which is basically understood and it was, has been criticized for a couple of decades now as uh, being primarily white, uh, primarily middle class and upper class. And so I wondered how did this move, how did, what happened with the environmental movement and why is there a, uh, a divergence between the, the indigenous knowledge of people, African Americans in the South, Native Americans, people in cities, uh, why is there a divergence between their understanding and their knowledge of the environment and institutions that are supposed to protect the environment and a nonprofit uh, environmental movement that is really uh, culturally, uh, you know, demographically limited. But the other implication of this was in the setting of the environmental agenda for the country and the implications for the entire world about the American version of what environmentalism is and what our priority priorities are, um, uh, that agenda is not formed with the full array of people who are impacted by environmental harms. Uh, and so this, is, this leads to a truncated environmental agenda and one that is not really represented. It represents more the class and economic interests of those who form that agenda than the people who are impacted the most. And a central idea of environmental justice is, is that the, peop the people who are least able, least politically, uh, have politically um, armed uh, to protect themselves, to mitigate the effects of environmental harms, uh, to set the direction of environmental policy, are actually those who are impacted the most. Uh, by environmental harms and the lack of environmental uh, or the, the maldistribution of environmental amenities such as parks, for example, and environmental public health. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in brief then in sum, I think that um, with the organization that I founded with my colleagues of cultural workers, environmental educators, and, and political activists, uh, we began to see that uh, knowledge production, so to speak, was really uh, at the center of what we were doing because we were, uh, we were seeking to uncover uh, the cultural assets, the cultural knowledges uh, that people already had and how, uh, and to make it, through education, make it more possible for them to mobilize what they knew for their own interests uh, in the interests of their communities. Um, I also want to just say that we also, as we built the critique of uh, environmental education and environmentalism, we also sought disciplinary allies. And we found them in critical social theory, environmental sociology, and the pedagogies of multicultural and social justice education. So there was a role uh, that we found. It wasn't that we were saying, you know, we can do this sort of on our own, but there was a certain kind of theorizing that was occurring that uh, we understood could have a role in what we were trying to restructure and critique. 
Um, and we also understood that our role as environmental educators, as community-oriented as we were, uh, a decolonizing pedagogical, pedagogical project had to be embedded uh, and really thoroughly identified with a larger project of decolonial, decolonializing environmental discourse generally and, and allying itself, aligning itself with historical struggles for civil and cultural rights of other marginalized and minoritized uh, populations. Thank you very okay. much, uh, 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 Ronnie, oh, yeah. uh, for, for that uh, reflection. I mean, now we're going to ask a question um, to, to, to Nombendulo, uh, a very specific one. I'm um, speaking of uh, apartheid government. Uh, Winnie Mandela said, and I quote, the years of imprisonment hardened me. Perhaps if you have been given a moment to hold back and wait for the next blow, your emotions wouldn't be blunted as they have been in my case. When it happens every day of your life, when that pain becomes a way of life, there is no longer anything I can fear. There is nothing the government has not done to me. There isn't any pain I haven't known." Close quote. There are two parts then to this quote. Um, first is, is how women specifically and unequally yoked into the project, of, uh, uh, the project to decolonize education. And also, do we see a different treatment of women in anti-oppression struggles? And secondly, how do we extend uh, the community working on this project to decolonize? Uh, you know, so this includes marginalized bodies, women, um, LGBTI uh, communities, as well as the disabled. So if you could uh, um, uh, you know, respond to this question, also based on your own experience, having been part of the um, uh, student activism and some of the struggles that we've seen on our campuses, that would uh, uh, I think interest all of us. Thank you. Um, definitely, I mean, the space, a lot of spaces are, are, are very aggressive towards women, towards marginalized bodies. Um, spaces of society are not intersectional, right? Um, Ahead, uh, the sort of change we want to see. So, at which university we are thinking of falling out of these must fall, there would have been a, a couple of demands. And so, if the university were to at some point put together a committee, I don't know if they have. I mean, I, 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 I was president um, in 2016, so I've been out of off the campus for quite a while. But if they have created a committee um, that is meant to spearhead the idea of decolonizing the institution uh, and the learning uh, experience. Um, I, I would imagine that the committee would automatically dominate it. Um, I mean, when I left the institution, the executive of <coughs> was one who, who left by the time I was leaving, she also left. And so the, the committees that spearhead the change that we want to see are male-dominated, which means that the way in which the change, or the, uh, um, um, the approach to the change comes about, it becomes very masculine, becomes very patriarchal. Okay, uh, it seems that we are um, having challenges of getting uh, through Unombendulo. But at this point, if she, she gets back on, Sinpiwe, uh, we'll try to see if she can join us. But, but I think for now, we're going to open to our audience to engage with the panel and uh, to, 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 to direct some questions or comments to, to Professor Adebani on, on, on his lecture. Uh, and if we could... Uh, um, if you, you raise your hand and just shoot straight into your question or your observation, and uh, I think our panel would be 
delighted to give some feedback onto that. Um, any hands? So I, I'm going to start uh, over with the lady at the back and the gentleman here. Um, in your lecture, which is going to get really into it, um, you talked about Sudan being uh, marginalised from Africa studies and being transferred into um, the Middle East Centre. I wondered how much the politics of um, funding in the academy plays into that, and I wondered a little bit if you could just talk a little bit more about um, the politics of, of funding in the academy in general and how that um, um, studies of Africa and the Middle East and other I will take the second uh, hand. Yes, sir, over here. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is a question for the professor. Uh, hi. Um, I wanted to ask what your stance was on uh, academics teaching African studies who are not black, and also um, what your view is on British education in terms of uh, university, like in terms of um, decolonizing the curriculum in, and in comparison to America and your experiences mm. in America and here in terms of teaching African studies. Shall we give you a okay. chance to All right. um, with first, uh, what um, The first question, thank you for your question. I didn't talk about on the, the, poli the, the political economy of knowledge production, which is another lecture entirely. Uh, part of that is um, at play here, but I think it's essentially about attitudes. Um, Part of it has to do with religious, you know, religion in terms of the ways in which you know um, Sudan for a long time before displayed wanted to identify itself with the you know uh, Middle East first with North Africa and then eventually with the Middle East and the Muslim world. So that's part of it. But it's also about how external forces, uh, you know, manipulating differences within the continent. Um, so there are all sorts of factors. Uh, for instance, I mean, if, if I can raise money and have a chair in Sudan studies, in African studies, I can do, I, I, I mean, I, we, we can start studying Sudan, you know, in African studies center, and probably would move over. So there is the political economy of it, but I think the essential thing is the attitude, to think that, uh, of course, uh, you also have to recognize that the, this is not just about attitude, it's also about some reality. You know, in reality, that some North African countries like to play Africa when it's convenient and play Middle East when it's convenient. So all of that is there. Uh, so there are also some factors. But if we have the right attitude, you know, to, to this in terms of understanding the point about studying global Africa, um, if we have a problem even studying uh, countries that are within the territory of Africa in African studies, then imagine those who are not even within, I mean, Africans who are not within continental Africa. So I think there are also some uh, factors that affect it, but I think the most important probably is the attitude that people have, those who are in charge of you know, uh, determining uh, this, this dynamic. Uh, the second question about uh, my experience, I don't think I understand very well in terms of, the first part of it I understand in terms of people who are not African teaching African studies. I personally have absolutely no problem with anybody teaching anything. If, if I have enough knowledge, I can go and teach China you know, teach in China, teach about anything. So that's not the problem. Uh, what I was, you know, um, identifying was this attitude in North America at the point when, you know, like cutting the historian, who, by the way, was a brilliant historian, was uncomfortable with the fact that Africans were teaching Africa. 
which has something to do with the issue that we're discussing about knowledge production. We think that Africans do not have legitimacy to teach about Africa. And it, it was, you know, it's a different thing if he was thinking it or talking about it among it. He actually wrote a piece in Chronicle of Higher Education saying that Africans teaching Africa is ghettoization of African history, which, you know, which is a different matter entirely. So that is, uh, that's a different question. Your second question, if I understood it very well, was my, the differences in terms of my experiences in teaching uh, uh, in the United States and here in the UK. Uh, at, at, the, at the university level, you mean? Yeah, okay. like any challenges that you, you know, are there any similarities in terms of challenges or is it completely different? You know, are is the British education system more receptive to African studies and actually studying um, Africa um, more broadly? Okay, well, you know, I was trained in the British tradition. I was trained in Nigeria and here at Cambridge. So, I mean, my education is in the British tradition, which I value. Um, what one thing that I say generally, and this is not absolutely true, but just my personal observation: British education emphasizes depth, depth, whereas American education is about breadth. That's a general. It might not be true for some people, but that's my observation. Which is why, as I said earlier, you will find engineering students in my class in African studies. There is no way an engineering student will find his way here. The way the curriculum is organized, you can't even you can't even come here. So it's about. So there's. Uh, for me, I mean, having that kind of education, I really value, you know, that. That, of course, I, I must confess, of course, that exposure to the the breadth of, you know, um, the emphasis on breadth in American education is also valuable. But in terms of how, you know, Africa is studied, I think there is also the issue of political economy. I mean, of course, Europe is where you know, Africa used to be studied before, you know, as I mentioned, you know, the African Americans started the study of Africa, but the the the, the to, to say the truth, the, the financial power that the United States has in terms of, and you can see that's why more or less the North America has overtaken Europe in, in terms of studying Africa, mm -hmm. because there's huge resources that are available to be able to study Africa in different dimensions. And the example I gave about Colombia is very interesting, the way in which you know, um, African study is going in, Af in, in <coughs> North America now, is really to study Africa globally. You know, and that I think is the way in which it should go. Um, there are challenges here because you don't have as much resources in British, you know, universities as you know you have in, in American universities. So that means that there is limitation. For instance, I mean, there are areas in which we think we would like to have to recruit people to teach here. You, you, I mean, you can't just wake up and do that. Whereas in the American university, well. I must also say there is so much diversity in America. I taught in a research one university, so it may be a peculiar experience from those who are teaching in you know, um, some other levels in the American state. You can go to your dean and you know, talk your dean into giving you two places to hire two new people because of the sheer you know, financial power that you know, big institutions have in, in the United States. You know. so, I mean, if I wake up and go talk to my dear about that now, they probably <coughs> will just laugh for fight, you know, at, uh, at dinner. So you, you, you don't have that kind of res the, 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 uh, the resources to be able to, you know, perhaps, I mean, do things that you, that in my ex experience, I must always add that because it could just be a peculiar experience. I was trained in Oxford, I'm in Cambridge, I'm in Oxford, maybe something peculiar to Oxford. Maybe it's different in other Russell Group, you know, universities or elsewhere in the UK. But that's the limitation of my experience. 
Um, so we'll take uh, two more hands. If we're oh yes, could we take you, you first then, yeah. Christian? Um, well, I thank you for the talk. It was really informative, and I learned a lot. I thought I knew quite a bit um, of the literature, but um, you really introduced me to some new texts I'm going to pursue. And I just want to pick up on the issue of following those two questions. Actually, I had one on funding because I think fun. Um, and one on who should teach African studies. I agree with you fully, right, that anyone should be able to teach Africa, um, and also Africans should teach about the rest of the world, which is always something that people are very hesitant for us to do. Why aren't you focusing on your country rather than, um, you know, I want to study America or Europe and so on. That's, a, that's an issue. But in the US, changes, I think, and I'm really pleased that you mentioned actually that African studies started in the historical black colleges. Um, but the change to mainstream African studies didn't really occur until black, African American, and Africans from the diaspora started to um, get jobs in Af centers for African studies. So there was a critical mass, and people could, and the <coughs> scholars there could push for a change. And I think that's the difference in Britain, is that there are hardly any black, um, young black or black scholars in, or of African descent, whether British or from Africa, in teaching in centers for African studies in Britain. And that's and in Europe generally, and that's a major problem. And that's, that is limiting the shifts that we would like to see. And until we, and I think, you know, if anything, what we should be pushing for is for more black scholars and more BME or whatever they want to call us in teaching in African studies, more PhDs for black British African students, for African students more generally, so that they can, that mass can happen. Because without that mass, right, um, you know, we're not going to get the change that we might want to see. Now, the issue also about funding, you're right about funding, um, and, um, but there is money available within the British system but it's not necessarily targeted at our prior or the priorities that we want to see if we are thinking about a different kind of future for Africa, right, than the one that um, is uh, is pursued by you know sort of we would want to say mainstream or um, or I don't know what to call it, yeah, you know, than the norm anyway. Um, and the funding, for example, in Britain at the moment is directed through GCRF. I, um, those of you who don't know, it's Global Challenge Research Fund. Is uh, British government has taken how many billions? Two billion of the aid money. So that 0.7 percent they say they're putting towards aid. Two billion is taken off to fund research in universities. Right? So it's actually, you know, the government really is not that money is not aid money. It's money for research. So you need, <coughs> you need to calculate what percentage is then going to aid. But that research money is tied to sustainable development goals. It's tied to development priorities of the Department for International Development and the FCO and other British um, institute, you know, governmental bodies. So that money, so it's really difficult. You try to put forward a proposal, right, to <laughs> to do the sort of research that you would want to do about Af global Africans, right? And you're not going to get funded. They laugh you down. They say, "Oh, this isn't that the future that we want? We want money which is going to make we want fund research that is supposed to make a difference on the ground." Even though we know after decades of aid, you know, not much different. The real differences that have been made have been have come through the endeavour of African people. Right. So what I, I mean, one of the things I was trying to do, um, and I have tried to do, is to find out how many, much money actually black scholars in Britain get from these funding bodies. 
They don't show the data. They're supposed to collect the data, but they don't present them. So we don't know how many black scholars or African scholars get ERC, ESRC funding. Sorry, I'm going on a bit. Or any funding from other funding agencies. We don't know. Uh, we don't know. You know. I mean, you'd have to scroll through the projects. And if they do, they're normally a co-applicant. Right. So the issue of our priorities, our research priorities, are not going to get funded in the um, in the current system. And in some sense, how then do we change that language? I mean, that might have happened in South Africa. I don't know, but we need to um, engage these funding bodies. We and you know whether it's the British Academy, some you know, and uh, and the black members. There are one or two black members of the British Academy. Start talking to them about how we can change the funding priorities and look at some of the things that are of interest to black black people in Britain, right, and or of African descent and also on the continent. Mm -hmm. So, uh, sorry, I'm going to go on a bit more because I have another question. <laughs> but I'm a geographer, right, and um, I did a BSc. Um, emphasizing in geology and geography mm -hmm. but I couldn't see a future for myself as a geologist and uh, my, my, um, my geography background was more ecology so I'm not mm -hmm. even I became a social scientist because I studied a master's in African studies mm -hmm. but I was actually a, you know you could call yeah. me a scientist yeah. but um, black people in Britain I grew up in London right? and we were I mean we're now called urban anyway everything we do is urban mm -hmm. so we weren't seen we're not expected to be in the British countryside. We're not expected to be looking at rocks or anything like that. Right. And so I was like strange because I wanted to be, yeah. you know, to go out there yeah. and do yeah. things. Yeah. Um, so and in my discipline at the moment is in crisis, especially here in the university, mm -hmm. because we don't have enough BME or black students. And, um, and we are supposed to be posh, according oh, yeah. to the newspapers, because right? yeah. most of our students are from the higher socioeconomic group. Mm -hmm. So how do we engage um, black students or black, young black people mm -hmm. to consider studying some of the critical issues that you've mentioned? Because we do teach them on the course, but we right. can't attract them to come here. Yeah. Okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you. Um, in response to, to your question, I'm sorry I can no longer take but I think we can engage the panel as uh, we all go out. But uh, um, in the close, uh, uh, as we are now coming to that, uh, if Prof, you could uh, respond to the question and also give us your closing remarks. And the same for you, Shaira, and running. That would be wonderful. Yeah, thank you also to, this, uh, uh, to the number of questions that we've received. I know there could have been more, but I expect that as we walk out, we could uh, engage with the panel even further. And, and follow them on their various platforms where we can get some more information. Over to you. Okay, let me just say that I endorse Professor Dali's you know, uh, analysis of the challenges um, in terms of funding. The only part of it I want to add is what I have tried to do since I came here is also to challenge you know, our folks back you know, in the continent that you know, the politics of the political economy of knowledge production, if you don't put your money in it, you can't also raise questions, especially those who have money. I know people who have too much money that anybody needs for one lifetime, you know, because I study elite and I was a journalist the first half of my life. So I know them. I have, I have been having conversations. Can you put some money down for this? I mean, I watch them waste this money, practically. Mm -hmm. so, and I always say, you cannot contribute to any debate about, you know, unequal no, I mean, terms of knowledge production because you're not. Funny. So one way in which we could do this is actually also to get people who have loads of money on our side <laughs> to also fund this thing. I mean, somebody, for instance, you know, we are working towards, you know, let somebody bring a billion dollars and say, I want the Rose chair to change to Mandela chair. 
The university is going to talk to him. I mean, the language of money is one of the most eloquent languages that human beings ever devised. You know, so this is the other side of it. I, I endorse your side, but they will go to encourage our people to also fund you know, the kinds of knowledge. Nobody is going to fund knowledge to subvert their power. Sometimes they do to be able to know what you are thinking, but you've got to also fund. So that, that's one challenge. And I'll be having this struggle when I meet you know, folks who have loads of money from the continent to say, you've got to come here. Some of them have also excuse, why should I put my money in Oxford? So where are you putting it in Africa? Yeah. If you were putting it in some university, then you can say, okay, this is where I'm funding. But the, the other thing is that sometimes, yes, you need to fund like, I, I'm, I, I don't pursue money for um, undergrad education in Africa. Yeah, I mean, in Oxford. Mm -hmm. What I pursue is postgraduate. Mm -hmm. You know, what you need, is even masters, it's a major, just one year of education in Oxford, and you can go back home, it's transforming. I mean, the... I mean, so there are all sorts of challenges with that, but so I think that side of it is also uh, very important. In terms of people who are teaching, yes, we've got to bring more people. I mean, we're having some of this conversation because some of us are, you know, fortunate to be here. So we've got to populate, you know, these centers. That's the thing in the United States, which of course raised some of the back, uh, backlash dimension. Uh, some of it will also mean that we've got to encourage people to come and fund, you know, positions here. Because you know, here, you know, it's difficult to talk to anybody about new positions unless there is some fund from, from somewhere. So it's important to pursue this. And I think by talking about things like this, we keep, I mean, now there is a sensitivity to these issues because of the efforts of, you know, fuel must fall, you know, roads must fall. This, sometimes people think these things don't have consequences. They do have consequences. You know, uh, for instance, I was involved in some discussions about some positions that I hold in some place that I need to be replaced. And every other person who is there, British, white, they're talking about how can we find an African to replace me. So these things have effect. You know, you guys have made some impact. You might not see it, but, you know, people are actually have been very sensitive now to some of these issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Randy Cross, if you could uh, yes, give uh, us your um, I would say my sort of last remarks about this would be um, a few gets a couple of points. One is that um, it had to do with the question of um, what are... Uh, sort of next steps or what, uh, what else is needed. And I would say, first of all, let's not limit it to classroom change in pedagogies and yeah. curriculum. Uh, secondly, academia does not need to do this on its own. It may be unable, really, and un or unprepared uh, to do this kind of work alone. There's a role for colleges and universities basically serve the needs of communities. Mm -hmm. That's the bottom line. Uh, create space for communities to co-create educational programs, both the curriculums and the pedagogies. Cultivate multicultural youth leadership uh, and create spaces to build communities and uh, community and coalitions across difference. Um, and then finally, protect the cultural rights, the cultural resources, the traditional knowledge, and the land rights of indigenous peoples everywhere because they are the brain trust of humanity. Interaction with the land and the landscape is the genesis of and the repository of humanity's deepest knowledge. Loss of land, loss of experience with the land means loss of knowledge. Mm. Amen. Shaila, yep. could give us your closing remarks. Uh, two things before I do that, um, just to contribute right. to your, your input. Um, I managed to sneak my way into uh, a course at the Oxford Internet Institute. Um, during the Masters in African Studies, uh, you can choose an option course. and. I decided I wanted to do one outside of African studies. And um, 
in that I uh, realized that there was a project going on um, that's a, seen as a collaboration between the University of the Western Cape in South Africa and the University of Cape Town in South Africa with uh, the University of Manchester in the UK and Oxford University. And this collaboration is around Fair Work. And Fair Work Foundation, uh, which is what the collaborative effort is called, is around um, rating platform businesses uh, that are kind of digital labor platforms. So if I want to order an Uber in the same, if I want to hire a domestic worker to clean my home in the same way that I call an Uber, you know, that's an easy way to kind of describe to you what these digital labor platforms are. But what I found when I interviewed some of the people at uh, the University of Cape Town when I was doing my field work, because it's also in this area, I realized that the norms and the standards that are used, the literature that is chosen in these projects is actually dictated by Oxford University. And the funding that they get for these projects um, is exactly from that GFCR. I'm not sure if mm, I've got the acronym yeah, GCR. right. GCRF, sorry. Um, it's from that funding. But what's even more interesting is, because I'm interested in, in, in uh, funding of universities, um, given my, my background in the Freeze Must Fall protests, the, the, the funding for public universities and for universities in general uh, in the UK, the subsidies for funding have actually decreased a lot. And some of the justification that is being used for that decrease is the, the, the aid money that has mm -hmm. come in. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a lot of room for the African academics um, to really challenge the way in which uh, this process is unfolding, um, both uh, academics from the UK as well as academics from uh, South Africa and other countries where these partnerships are quite uh, prevalent. The second thing is, in your point about um, the organic knowledge or the indigenous knowledge, rather, of communities, there's a documentary on National Geographic about the Okavango Delta. Mm -hmm. And in that, um, there's, there, there are many scientists and um, biologists, uh, white and one African woman, uh, that are included in the documentary. Um, and their project is basically focused on finding the source of um, the, the Quito River. And they go to Angola and go on this expedition, and obviously there's a lot of funding that's gone into this. But what I found really interesting is that although the guides are interviewed in the documentary, uh, they're not seen as experts, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that professional title that we give people um, needs to extend the university mm -hmm. and we need to figure out how we can do that through conversations and discourse around decolonizing education more broadly uh, because people's indigenous knowledge and people's organic knowledge is really fundamentally important um, and this goes to my concluding remarks as well that African studies um, is a field of scholarly inquiry to constantly interrogate epistemological, methodological, and theoretical approaches to the study of Africa, inserting Africa and its people at the center of that interrogation as subjects rather than objects. Because even in this documentary where you can see the contributions of these um, local people uh, who are experts of the Okavango Delta, because they live in the Okavango Delta, uh, the, the theoretical and methodological frameworks don't, don't see them as experts. Mm -hmm in the same way that a biologist from 
South Africa who's a white PhD graduate is seen as an expert. But beyond that as well, I think that decolonization is not just about representation in an oppressive system, but about reimagining and creating a different system. So I agree with you, Prof um, Adabani, that we need to seek out money. But we also need to figure out how we're going to disrupt the systems that make it so difficult for us to, to, to create and to produce the knowledge that is needed, fundamentally needed in this really, really sick world. Um, and it's much more about organic and structural change. It's about equalizing the playing field, not just for the sake of equalizing the playing field, not just for the sake of having black academics on the playing field, but for social justice. And in the fight for social justice, there are no single issue struggles. So in the same way that Fees Must Fall and movements that have managed to, to really put these issues on uh, the international agenda, there's also an equal need uh, to protect um, these, these movements and the legacy of these mo movements because they're very easy to destroy. Uh, and when you uh, hear um, politicians or uh, academics at Oxford speak about roads must fall, for example, um, and how Oxford has a fundamental space um, as the, pri the prime knowledge production uh, system in the world, we also need to remind them of those that came before. Um, so when we're doing tours for first years at Oxford, it can't be that they think that Oxford is one of the first universities in the world. Uh, we need to show that Africa has always played a huge part. Uh, why do we, for example, wear the robes that we do? Where does subfusk come from, for example? These questions, I think, are also important because it speaks to the cultural capital that Oxford has created, which is not due to its own efforts, but is due to the efforts uh, globally and also um, of African countries and uh, African people. Um, so as a student from the continent coming in, it's been very weird how so much is kind of taken for granted about the cultural capital. And to be quite honest with you, I didn't come here because of Oxford's brand value. I came here because I was escaping a very toxic political space at home, but also because I wanted to be in a class full of African students from all over the continent. And I wanted to meet people from all over the world. How do we create these spaces in Africa? How do we ensure that we bridge the, the gaps? And I guess from a South African perspective, there's historically white universities and there's historically black universities. How do we ensure that some of the um, collaborative efforts that the African Studies Center, for example, embarks on are not just with the historically white universities in South Africa, but are also with historically black universities? I mean, Wits University, my alma mater, they, they claim Nelson Mandela as an alumni, but Nelson Mandela was actually financially and academically excluded from the university, and he was told uh, when they uh, appealed the exclusion that Wits is not for black people and for women. Um, and till today, even though we've made quite a few significant um, wins through these movements, um, the struggle continues, and I, I, I definitely think there's a lot of room for collaboration that disrupts, not just collaboration that finds representation in an unjust system. So that's my closing remark. Thank you. Thank you very much. I wish that we could stay all night. I really do. Um, I, I, I want to close the lecture just by extending our, our heartfelt thanks to all of you for coming and for sticking it through with us until this hour. I hope there'll still be a little bit of time to engage more directly with 
the panelists, but Vernon Grass, thank you so much for coming out from uh, the west coast of the U.S. We appreciate your being here. Yes, thank you. Here, thank you so much um, for everything that you do and continue to do, uh, especially considering the, the barriers that you have to consistently overcome to keep doing the work that you do. Caesar, I hope you'll have a chance to speak with Caesar. Caesar's uh, educational experience is especially dynamic, but I think is, is also even uh, emphasized by how humble he's been in this conversation. Caesar has completely revolutionized the trajectory between primary education and Oxford. I'll, I'll let him tell some of you if, you if you're willing to speak with him about that. And of course, uh, Professor Wale Adebami, thank you so much Pat, for responding to the call to do this lecture for the second time. Uh, we promise that next year we'll, we'll try we'll try not to bang on your door, but um, everyone everyone just looks so forward to, to hearing your remarks. And of course, to our guests uh, who came this evening, Professor Daly, Associate Professor Marie Panache Chikumadzi, uh, thank you so much for coming. I really encourage all of you to try and register for the Oxford Africa Conference, which begins on Friday and ends on Saturday with a gala at uh, Exeter College. Uh, otherwise, this concludes the third annual lecture, and thank you so much for coming. Thank you. 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 Thank you.